say that I am, I think it's great what you are doing for them and giving them a little time away. And uh, he pours himself out in study and preparation and shepherding. And you know that it's hard to get better food than what Pastor Frank Jones serves out. And um, so this is a great time for him. And some of you ladies probably know what it's like to have the daily pressure to feed the hungry around you three times a day, right? And you just, you live with that pressure. What am I going to, when I can do breakfast, you know, lunch, dinner, and, um, and then you probably love it when you go like maybe to a camp or a retreat and it's like somebody else does all the cooking and the shopping and the dishes, right? And so, and it's just kind of this, oh, you know, I get to relax for once in my life, you know. Well, it's you know, a little bit kind of like that in a way when you're, you know, every week you're, you know, you're in the word on your own, of course, but it's, there's just always this, you know, you're constantly thinking what, what do my people need? What, you know, what does God want me to say this next week? And so just, uh, you know, him to be away and, and uh, they were going to be worshiping today at Valley View Baptist Church, pastored by uh, Pastor Volker Steckman, good church, and just a chance for them to, to be refreshed and just show up and just you know not have any official responsibility unless maybe they see him and ask him to preach or something you know on the spot so which happens sometimes but anyway just want to say i appreciate what you're doing and and we were we crossed paths at a conference i guess in june and he mentioned that he was gonna have two or three weeks he was gonna be gone and i said i tell you what i said if you i said if you want I said, I will come and I will speak in your place and I will do it gratis, meaning no charge. So I just want you to know that's what I, because I said, I don't want the church to be burdened by your being gone. So I'm doing this for you and for the Lord. So anyway, I just wanted to say that to you. I'm thrilled with uh, what you're uh, providing for him to do. So, and you know, the Lord's work is great. I get to be on a date with my wife. Uh, my parents are going to take care of, we still have four kids at home, two in college. And so my folks are going to watch our kids for a week. And my wife and I were trying to think, when was the last time we were by ourselves for a week? <laughs> And we think the last time was in Bangladesh. And that was not really a vacation. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say that. So anyway, so this is, it's just wonderful all the way around. And to be with you. And we're thankful for you and your part in our ministry. And at some point, I'll, I'll say more about that maybe. So I want to take us to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm teaching a class right now online in Ephesians, on Ephesians, I guess I should say. I'm having my, trying to have my students memorize the book of Ephesians. Basically their assignment, I, I divided up into like 15 segments or 14 or 15. I said, basically either you memorize it or you read each segment 50 times. And so my goal is for them to memorize this book by the time they are done with it. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and my plan would be to talk about probably the first three verses this morning, and then we'll come back 
and we'll try to wrap it up uh, in the evening service. And if you want a title for this, I would title it Saved by God's Gracious Power. Saved by God's Gracious Power. Almost every word in there is coming from the text in one way or another. The word saved is the word that Paul picks up and begins using in verse 5 of chapter 2, where after he's, he's in a flow of thought and really in a making a parenthetical comment, by grace ye are saved. And then he uses that same word again in verse 8, which probably all of you could quote, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and he uses that word again. I use the word gracious, saved by God's gracious power, because grace begins to enter the passage in about verse 5. Again, by grace ye are saved. And then verse 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. And then verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And there's a lot about grace in the book of Ephesians. I may say more about that tonight. Well, what about the word power saved by God's gracious power? Some of you that have keen eyes and quick minds might have been glancing through here and saying, I don't see the word power anywhere in verses 1 to 10. But if you look at verse 1, the very first word is, and, not a super exciting word, but it's a connecting word. And it's connecting chapter 2 to what has preceded. And the question is, what, what does it connect to? Because obviously, and you have the quickened who were dead. So we know that, you know, the, the, the second half of the and, what it connects to. But what is the, what's the other side of the and? And I would say probably the best guess or decision on that would be back to chapter 1, verse 20. Verse, chapter 1, verse 20 uses the word dead, and so does chapter 2, verse 1. And the link, the connection, the segue, to use a deeper word, relates to this idea of the power of God that is mentioned in verse 19. For Paul is in a prayer, beginning about verse 15, he's in a prayer that the Ephesian believers would understand what is the hope of God's calling, what is the exceeding riches of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then he talks about all that his power accomplished in Christ, raising him, seating him, putting all things under his feet, making him the head over all things for the benefit of the church, and then he comes back, and you, that same power that raised Christ and seated Christ and put all things under Christ's feet and made him head over all things to the church, that same power was at work in you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So that's why saved by God's gracious power. And I want to focus on verses 1 through 3, and this is the dead condition of those whom, to whom God displayed his gracious power. 
And the word that describes those that God saved by his gracious power, the word that's used is dead. There is in World War II history, there's a famous raid. In fact, it's called the Great Raid. It's one of the great POW rescue stories from World War II. It happened in the Philippines, wonderful country where we have enjoyed living. It happened about two or three hours north of Manila in a city called Cabanatuan City. That was where about 500 Filipino and American prisoners were being kept after the Bataan Death March. Most, I think, Americans say Bataan, but we say Bataan Death March. They marched. Many of them died. They, one of the ending sites or the camps was there in Cabanatuan City. And as the war was progressing, there was some concern that the Japanese might kill all the prisoners before General Douglas MacArthur could free them on the island of Luzon. And so some Philippine scouts and some army divisions, the 6th Army Division, got up a scheme to actually go behind the enemy lines and work their way toward this camp where there were some 500 prisoners of war. A couple of them, a few of them managed to get into a hut, kind of they dressed like natives and uh, began to scout out the camp, finding where the telephone lines were, where the pillboxes were, things like this, as they made their daring plan. The night of January 30th, 1945, one of, there was an American plane, I think it's called a P-61 Black Widow, one of the planes that was made to fly at night. And uh, during the night, this plane faked that a pilot came in, faked that he was having some engine problems, cut one of the engines, dropped down about 1,500 feet, ended up clearing some of the mountains by only about 30 feet in the surrounding area, but did, did various aerobatic maneuvers with his airplane while the, the outsiders were creeping in on that camp and the Japanese were so distracted by the plane, they didn't hear what was happening. The telephone lines were cut. And with only two American casualties, they freed 500 prisoners. Unbelievable raid where they saved the lives of these men. These men who many of them, and, and you know, in all respects, practically, some of them were like living dead people. They were malnourished. They were sick, diseased. They were poorly treated. They didn't know whether they were going to be killed or whether they would live. In fact, when 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 they when the, the Filipinos and the Americans came in and they, they eliminated some of the Japanese, okay, come out. Some of the prisoners had to be bodily forced out because they thought it was a trick by the Japanese. And if they started to escape, they would then be killed. These prisoners were as good as dead saved by an amazing, rescued by an amazing mission, the Great Raid. And in our passage, we've got a story, not a story, but we've got an exam, a passage that takes us through what God has done to save people who were dead by his gracious power. And I want to focus in on what Paul gives us here in verses 1 to 3, this description of what it was like to be dead in trespasses and sins. And you can see verse 1, and you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
Well, believe it or not, there's been a lot of theological ink spilled over what it means to be dead. How dead is dead? And there's all kinds of comments across from left to right. But I think what is helpful here is that Paul actually gives us something of a description of what it is like to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And right in the passage, he really unfolds that for us. And so we're going to look at three things here of what it looks like to be dead in trespasses and sins. We're going to pick up the first one in verse 2. So again, verse 1, and you hath he quickened, and you can see that's in italics if you've got a King James Version, because it, the verb is actually pulled up to the front to help us because we don't get to the verb until verse 5. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein, okay, wherein in those sins, the sins in which you were dead, in those sins, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And the first, the first way I'd like to summarize the first description of what it's like to be dead in trespasses and sins is, number one, a participant in our sinful culture. A participant in our sinful culture. And what we see here in the beginning part of verse 2 is how as a participant in our sinful culture, we were walking in our age and its ways. In verse 2, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, the age of this world. An age is a period of time in history that has certain characteristics. We talk about this even in music. We have some musicians here in our midst here today. And even in music, we talk about Baroque and Renaissance and classical and romantic. And each of these has different characteristics, which I don't know what they are. And we even have this in history. We have the Renaissance period and the medieval period and the postmodern period. We give names to generations of people. We have baby boomers and baby busters and generation X and millennials and all these. And each of these has various characteristics assigned to them. And the idea of the age of this world is we have this world, this cosmos, this system of anti-God system of evil. And there are different ages of that world. Its priorities don't change. It's always the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Its priorities and its passions, its pursuits don't change. But in different ages, it takes on different manifestations and that's what we sometimes refer to as sinful culture. Not all of culture is sinful, but there are aspects of culture that are sinful. Every culture. And we walked according to our sinful culture. We were a participant of our sinful culture in its and walking in our age and its ways. And you, you see this inscription. I mean, think of Abraham, who is, he and his wife, they, she is barren, and Sarah, 
says to Abram, why don't you take Hagar, my handmaid, and have a child by her? Well, if you're reading that story, living in you know, Richmond, Virginia, you might think to yourself, what a crazy idea. Who would ever, you know, who would ever suggest that? You know, why don't you take my friend and have a baby by her? But if you go back to the age in which Abraham lived, that was their culture. That it was culturally appropriate for your handmaiden to bear a baby for you. That's the way they did things in that day and age. And we could pull up examples from our culture and the way our culture does things that are culturally appropriate, maybe even legal, but are not necessarily God-honoring or biblically correct. And as a participant in our sinful culture, we were not just walking according to our age, but really walking in Satan's domain and the whole moral atmosphere that, in a sense, he oversees or masterminds. And I'm using this word moral atmosphere, and this is a word, a term that comes from one of my professors when I was in school. I like it. Let me explain what I mean by this. So verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course, the age of this world. Okay, the manifestation of the world in our time or in the Ephesians time. What it looked like in their day, the kinds of temptations in their day. According to, this is the other way in which we walked, according to the prince of the power of the air. Prince obviously is Satan, right? Okay, the prince of the power of of the air. That word power can also be translated authority. It can refer to the idea of exercising authority. It can refer to the domain over which somebody exercises authority. So actually the, the sphere or the domain itself. And I would suggest that might be the idea, the prince who is over the domain of the air. So his domain is the air. <laughs> okay, well, what is air, right? I mean, is that like oxygen or what is that? And it seems like the word spirit, okay, this might be a little different the way we normally read it, but it seems like the word spirit is actually modifying the word air. Now, we tend to read spirit as going back to prince, like it's an apposition. Okay, there's a Greek reason why the word spirit does not probably go back to the word prince in terms of a, I can be technical, an appositional relationship. It seems because the, the way the word is, it's in the same grammatical case as the word air, it seems like it's explaining okay, the prince of the domain of the air, this moral atmosphere, to use this term again, that my professor likes, the, the prince of the power of the air. And what do we mean by air? We don't just mean, you know, like the atmosphere, but the moral atmosphere, this moral atmosphere that now works in the children of disobedience all in the domain of the prince. 
If somebody says, I'm quoting from a commentary, there is shared responsibility among three agents for this spiritual death, the world, Satan, and the guiding environment. This is Daryl Bach, those of you that... These create a climate leading one into sin and death. There are negative spiritual forces at work in the world, and when one follows them, disobedience is the tragic and damaging result. So this world, apart from God, is a dangerous place. As it has been since the fall in Genesis 3, it is teeming with hostile powers and choices about values that take people in destructive directions, whether they recognize it or not. Left to its own devices, it yields destruction as a fallen world in need of redemption. This is why, if we are left to our instincts, the results are often poor. And we are, were, before salvation, a participant in our sinful culture. This was the element in which we lived. It was as natural to us as breathing. Uh, my kids, years ago, we had this children's book where it's about two birds, and they find this egg, and these two birds decide that they're going to help hatch this egg. And so they pull the egg up to their nest, and the picture book has this up in a tree, and they're going to take care of this egg. Well, finally, the egg cracks, and it's a baby crocodile. And so they've got this baby crocodile in their nest up in this tree, and the two birds can hardly find enough food to feed it. I mean, it just constantly needs more food, and they just can't feed it. It's always hungry. It doesn't fit in the nest, and they finally decide to teach it to fly, and it throws itself into the air and plunges right down into the pond that's below. And then it's happy because it finally is in its element. It did not belong in a bird's nest. It belonged in a pond. <laughs> it was in its element. And in many ways, when we were participants in our sinful culture before salvation, we were just in our element. We're just going along with what everybody else did, not really thinking about it. And it would be easy to say, well, you know, so you know, it's just my culture and it mentions verse two, it mentions prince. And so the prince of the power of the air. And so, you know, really, you know, Satan made me do it. I mean, I wasn't really responsible. But that leads us into verse three. And number two, as far as a description of being dead in trespasses and sins, number two is a slave to our flesh and mind. We weren't just a participant in our sinful culture and like the devil made me do it and I couldn't help it. Actually, we were a slave to our own flesh and mind. Verse 3 says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, our flesh and our mind. You can see in verse 3, we were all, we were all, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. We're all participants 
You can see you in verse 2, and then the we in verse 3. Among them also, we also, verse 2. We're talking about ye walked. And it could be almost like, you know, Paul's talking to these Ephesians, largely Gentiles like you and me. Well, you walk this way, but don't be mistaken about us Jews. Verse among them also, we all had our conversation in times past. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile in terms of the way that they walked. And we were willing, it's all, but we were willing. You can say in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, this is what our flesh wanted to do, and we did it. We carried out with our body the desires of our flesh and of our mind. The flesh in Scripture is purely evil. The flesh will be with you till death. It is not redeemable. It is not transformable. It is not sanctifiable. The flesh will always tell you to do what's wrong. It may sometimes tell you to do something good, but it's not something you should be doing right then. Like maybe it might tell you to, you know, uh, maybe maybe you should be, you know, going out soul winning, but you decide to read your Bible. You know, I mean, your flesh will always tell you to do what you, not, you should not be doing. That's why there's a constant battle regardless of your age. It remains fiercely loyal to what is wrong and can show its ugly head even after salvation. And this flesh has desires. It has wishes or things it wills to do. And I don't know the different translations you might have before you, but verse 3 where it says the desires of the flesh and of the mind, the word desires is the word wills. That it's like the, the flesh has a will and the mind has a will. That's why it's so hard to say no sometimes to your flesh or even to the thoughts in your mind. Ever try to say no to yourself? There's this volitional aspect to your flesh that is pushing you in a given direction. And even our minds, the wills of the flesh and of the mind. You know, before salvation, our minds were depraved. They were dark. Uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 18, refers to having the understanding, having the mind darkened. Verse 18 uses the word ignorance. There's spiritual ignorance. There's spiritual darkness, a lack of understanding. Verse 23 of chapter 4 says we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay, what does that mean? I was telling my kids the other day, I said, yeah, I said, your mind has a spirit. You know, my kids kind of looked at me like, <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, it's again, it's this idea that this, this, the moral atmosphere, the, the spirit, the attitude, the disposition, the spiritual aura of your mind. It was, it was, it was off target. It was misaligned. Like what happens to a car and you so notice that your tread is now, you know, it's not wearing straight. It's wearing like this, you know, you're like, Oh no, something's misaligned. Okay. That's what happened to our a spirit of our mind. And it's got to be renewed. But before salvation, here's our flesh and our mind. And it's always telling us to do what is wrong or what is not right, and it's got desires, and it's got these wills, and it's pushing us. And whether we knew it or not, we were a slave to our flesh and to our mind. 
This is what it's like to be dead in trespasses and sins. Or you may know something is wrong, but you can't fix it. You can't change it. There's kind of a little want-to inside, but not that big of a want-to. Think of uh, the example of Augustine, one of the church fathers who... Um, lots of writings of Augustine out there, but before his before he was converted, his lifestyle was very much enslaved to his flesh. He um, had a mistress for 13 years. They had a child together. Then there came a point in life where he was to get married, and there was a woman that he was engaged to that he was going to wed as his wife, not his mistress. And so he broke off the relationship with his mistress because he was now engaged to this other woman, but she was underage. And so while he waited for her to come of age, he got another mistress while he waited for his wife to come of age. And here was his prayer that he says before his conversion. He said, this was my prayer because he knew he was in sin, but he couldn't stop. And he would pray something like this, Lord, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. (laughs) But not yet. Isn't that so like humanity, right? Lord, uh, Lord, free me from lying, but not yet. <laughs> Lord, free me from stealing, but, you know, after this next paycheck. <laughs> Lord, Lord, you know, free me from this relationship, but let me, let me do one more post. Let me just tweet one more time. Give me freedom, but not yet. Free me from anger, but let me just, let me, let me, Let me speak a piece of my mind first. (laughs) This is who we are at our worst outside of Christ. Which leads to the third description in this passage of what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. So being dead, what does it look like? Again, lots of theological, how dead is dead? Okay, hard to answer that question. But you got a description right here in the passage. What's it look like to be dead in trespasses and sins? Well, you're a participant in your sinful culture, walking in the ways of your times, walking in the domain of the of the prince who's overseeing the moral atmosphere of that time. You're a slave to your flesh and your mind. There's this enslavement to your own desires, and you can't even free yourself. But number three, what we see in this passage is that we are a child of wrath. To be dead in trespasses and sins is to be a child of wrath. And you can see the end of verse 3, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature, every person that's born into this world is as doomed to wrath as anybody else There's no difference in our sinful nature than that of anyone else, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're a churchgoer and you go to church on Sunday morning or you walk your dog on Sunday morning. The Jews, for example, were no less lost or no less under wrath than any other just because they were God's chosen people. By nature, we're by nature, by nature emphasizes what we were by virtue of being born, of being human. We acquired a nature of being a child of wrath simply by being born. The children of disobedience are naturally children of wrath. 
Earlier in the passage mentioned children of disobedience. That's a kind of a Hebrew or Semitic way of saying people who are characterized by disobedience. And the same thing, children of wrath are people that are characterized by wrath. There's divine wrath. Psalm 7, just just listen. I read this earlier this week. Psalm 7, God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, meaning the wicked, if he turn not, he, God, will wet his sword. God hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. This is using human imagery to describe divine wrath. Like someone whose sword is being sharpened. Like somebody's bow who is being bent. There was a, one of America's preachers of a couple hundred, a few hundred years ago was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was a writer. He was a missionary to the Indians. And he preached a sermon in Massachusetts called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And his text was from Deuteronomy 32.35. You ever heard a sermon from Deuteronomy 32? I'm not sure if I ever have. But the text was, their foot shall slide in due time. So this text for this sermon. His thesis was that there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And he drew out these implications from his text. Their foot shall slide in due time. He said they're always exposed to destruction like somebody that's on a slippery slope. and, And they're always exposed to destruction on that slope. Number two, he said they're exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. Like when you're walking on that slope and you don't know at what point you're going to slip and slide, right? You ever been out on the ice like in your sidewalk and you're trying to clean it off and it's sloped and you just know you're going down, but you don't know exactly when. It's like that's like the wicked. It's like they're on this slippery slope and it's just they don't know when all of a sudden they're Feet will kick out from under him. He said they're liable to fall of themselves. His idea here was that even just the weight of their own sinfulness, they don't need any extra weight to help them collapse and slide down the slope of divine wrath. They're liable to fall in and of themselves. Their own sinful weight will bring them down. Then he made this fourth implication. The only reason they have not fallen yet is that God's appointed time has not yet come. Don't let anybody in that condition think that they will escape or that the time is not coming. Then in his sermon, he says this, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much 
as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it, this slender thread, and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator. You don't have Christ and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you've ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you. One moment. And they say that in the preaching of that sermon, people began to hold on to the pews in front of them because they just felt the floor was going to open up right then and they would drop into hell before the service ended. People walked out of that service who were no longer children of wrath, but they were now children of God. They were no longer children of disobedience. They were children of light, like Ephesians 5. And all are like this. This is the condition of those upon whom or whom God saved by his gracious power. And we're going to pick up here tonight. But here's the point. Verse 4 uses the word mercy. And I was seeing that word in the hymns we were singing this morning. Mercy. Because if all are under divine wrath, guess what? Then all are under mercy. There is no other escape. There is no other solution but to cast yourselves upon God for his mercy. So as we think about this passage and bring our time together this morning to a close, and we're going to, again, hopefully tonight we'll work our way through the remaining verses. But I do just want us to give thought to ourselves. Think of this description of being dead in trespasses and sins. Think of this threefold description. A participant in our sinful culture. Who's calling the shots for us? Are we the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord? Or are we walking in the counsels of the ungodly? Who are our major influences and are we listening to them? A participant in our sinful culture. Or think of this, a slave to our flesh and to our mind. Can we even say no? You know, even sometimes being religious, you know, we can do, we can, we can look religious on the outside, but be dead on the inside. We can do good things for terrible motives. <laughs> I can preach a sermon in order to be lifted up. That'd be terrible. Absolutely terrible. You can be charitable so that you'll be recognized or that you feel good about yourself, or to overcome the guilt over the way that you earned your money. I'm just saying, I mean, we are we, I mean, we're such bad sinners, we find very innovative ways to express it. And then children of wrath, doomed by, by birth. I mean, just the fact that you were born, you came out, and your mama said, what a beautiful baby. And the preacher said, he's a sinner. She's a sinner. 
It's a child of wrath. And the only escape is what we're going to find in verses 4 through 10. May God help us to be instruments, not only just evaluating ourselves, but instruments of mercy to share with people around us who are dead in trespasses and sins. May we be used like those soldiers and Philippine scouts on January 30 of 1945, the great rescue, the great raid. May we be God's soldiers and scouts to be a part of his work of saving, rescuing mankind from their eternal ruin. Let's pray together. I'm going to just with heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment, and I don't know quite how you close your services, but I do just want us, I realize probably, you know, probably the vast majority, 99%, I don't know, maybe 100% are, are saved by God's gracious power. But just out of the, the chance as an outsider who doesn't really know everybody here, could I just urge maybe there might be somebody and you know this description fits you. You know, like what Brother Nick read earlier, we Romans 8, if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you're Christ. If you have not the Spirit, you're none of His. And you know you don't have the Spirit. You know to what extent your mind runs in the direction of your sinful culture. You, you know what it is like to be a slave. You know you're under wrath. And I would just urge you, again, these words from Jonathan Edwards, oh, sinner, you have no interest in any mediator. You have no help to save you. Your foot will slide in due time. You're hanging by a a slender thread. And I would just urge you to flee to Christ from the wrath to come and find in Christ great mercy. And I'm sure there's a number of people here this morning that would love to talk with you if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And we can't give you life, but we can point you to the one who will and who does. Oh, sinner, list to the loving call. Wonderful words of life. Father, We thank you for your great rescue. For what you did at the cross. For really what you did even before the cross, before the foundation of the world at work. We thank you that although there was one working or there is this age, a spirit of the age that's working and that you don't disobedience, you are at work. 
And we pray this morning that you would help us to see the people around us as dead if they're outside of Christ. To see people as souls, to care, to love, to speak. Lord, use us as ambassadors who say to people, be ye reconciled to God. Lord, use us in that way. And Lord, we're asking as well this morning if there's any, any, that know them to still, know themselves to be dead in trespasses and sins. Lord, today would be the day when they awaken and arise and come to the light. Oh, Lord, work. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.